grandma, we all love grandma. Grandma may have had that little weird looking can thing and you could squeeze the handle and this little blade inside would go back and forth and it would let the, it would sift the flour or it had a turn crank on it. Did the same purpose. They're cute. They're nostalgic. I find them functionally useless. Maybe the big difference between home baking and professional baking is a better sense of what's where. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 44. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, welcome back to the podcast. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Follow me on Facebook at Food and Rothbard, all one word, or click the Facebook icon at my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and join my Eating Liberty Facebook group. You can also follow me on the various other social media buttons as well as subscribe to my YouTube channel or support the show through PayPal, Bitcoin, or Patreon. Coffee and tea drinkers can support the show with a purchase of a coffee mug from my Cranky Without Coffee site linked on the podcast page, and you can pick up a copy of my Muffins e-cookbook. Just give me your email address and download the book. And for that, I'll send you a few emails each week. People serious about history know that the narrative taught in high school and most colleges is woefully inadequate. The Declaration of Independence is more complicated than Jefferson writing some words. Was that the only draft? Or were there others which were rejected? Was the War of Northern Aggression just about one issue? Or is it more complicated than that? Getting thorough answers to complicated questions requires a good source, and I have just that source. Brian McClanahan's McClanahan Academy. Click over with culinarylibertarian.com academy, my affiliate link, to see all six courses, but be sure to enroll, which is always free, to learn about new classes. Brian has a new course coming out soon on American history up to 1865. It's going to be a college-level course, the likes of which almost no college would dare touch. Brian covers topics not approved by the mainstream academia. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash academy. Serious history for people serious about history. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash academy. My guest today is no guest at all, but the host, me. I want to talk about cake mixing and baking and some of the thinking behind getting organized about cakes. There's plenty to know and say about cakes, but as with any skill and craft, we need to start at the beginning. Cake. Let them eat cake. Well, that's not actually Marie Antoinette, but probably Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But the history of cake is another episode. To talk of cake is to parrot a scene from Forrest Gump. Angel food cake, and white cake, and yellow cake, and chocolate cake, and carrot cake, which is a muffin, and lane cake, and fruit cake, and giant cake, and cheese cake, which is a custard, and chiffon cake, and flourless cake, and, well, you get the idea. So, this episode can't be all cakes, but we can find some of the similarities in procedure and some of the habits of bakers which we can learn and use to ensure we make the best cakes possible. So, let's start at the beginning. If you haven't heard the story before, I got into food on the cooking, not baking, side of the kitchen. There is a lower bar for precision with cooking, and that makes it a draw. Plus, the fire and the heat and the stainless steel, well, it is exciting. 
baking is nuance and precision and order of operations. I learned much of my baking detail from Jack Shoup, a certified master chef. Like any excellent craftsman, a painter or writer or woodcarver, he had his own picadillos about procedure and, as it happens, they work. Are they the only way to success? No, but attention to detail, being thorough, which sounds the same but isn't, and mise en place, having everything in place. That is, of course, the physical stuff, pans and mixers and ingredients and the recipe, but also the mental Allow for enough time to start and finish with no interruptions. Some mixes do not play nicely if left to stand as the batter. Be focused on your task and double check your steps. The physical mise en place is pretty easy and a reading of the recipe and knowing what you're making will help with the big things. And always read the recipe through one time including the procedure. So oven, pans, mixer, extra bowls, whisks, rubber spatulas, cake spatulas, and a sifter and pan release or parchment circles and hot pads and a cake tester and a cooling rack and space on the counter. That's kind of the first round stuff. The second round stuff is measuring spoons, measuring cups, or better yet, a scale, uh, mixing bowls, bowl scrapers, uh, a dish for your battery utensils so you don't make a mess on the counter, and a moist towel. Clean up drips, which always seem to happen no matter who you are. And the other mise en place, that mental mise en place, that is, you know, sort of having your head in the game, so to speak. Uh, as a woodcutter might say, measure twice, cut once. With baking, and this is what I teach my kids, measure everything into its own bowl. So yes, we might need a lot of bowls. Then look at the recipe card and point to each ingredient as you read it on the recipe card and say, where is it? Flour? Check. Sugar? Check. Eggs? Check. Milk? Check. And so on. This way you don't find out you've missed something in the middle of mixing because that's not the place to find it. The other component of mise en place is visualization. As you read the recipe, before you do anything, in your mind's eye, see yourself performing the steps as you read them. And so you're visualizing adding the butter to the mixing bowl, putting it on the mixer, and fixing the paddle to it. You're going to cream the butter, and you're going to visualize adding the sugar, then adding the eggs, and adding the flour, and the milk, and the flour, and the milk, or whatever the steps are for the recipe. But the, the main reason for visualizing the steps is creating an anticipation of what's next. If you can see this project in your head as you're doing every step, then as you're actually doing the mixing, whatever you're mixing, here we're mixing cake, or bread, or cookies, or if you're cooking dinner on the stove, visualizing where you need to be and what you need to have for the next step makes the whole process move along smoothly and efficiently. And with something like a cake batter, which wants efficiency from going from the bowl to the pan to the oven, this is one of the key steps to being organized. So as you're as you're visualizing the step and you, <laughs> you need something, you know it's gonna be you know where it's gonna be. It's gonna be where you can reach it. You're not walking all over the place looking for stuff. And that's really one of the probably maybe the big difference between home baking and professional baking is a better sense of what's where. See each step so you can anticipate the next one as you're doing your mixing.
Let's talk a moment about tools. Cakes, cake flour, cakes want the flour sifted. Now, in some cases, that may not be true, but for the most part, since what we're trying to make is a uh, light, well, light and fluffy, is <laughs> what mostly we want that cake to be, we want that cake to be, you know, tall and fluffy and yummy. And that's one of the, that's the thing that we like about it. So a sifter is a really useful tool for getting the flour sifted a couple of times. One, to get rid of all the big chunks, because that's not going to be any good. Who wants that? But also we're adding a little bit of air to that big mound of flour. It doesn't really look like it, but there's a little bit there, and it's going to help us with the mixing. Now, Grandma, we all love Grandma. Grandma may have had that little weird-looking can thing, and you could squeeze the handle, and this little blade inside would go back and forth, and it would let the it would sift the flour, or it had a turn crank on it with this wound wire that did the same purpose. They're cute. They're nostalgic. I find them, uh, aside from the visual contribution to an aesthetic in the kitchen, functionally useless. Because what goes in, you only get most of it back. So some of the flour, and if you've mixed your flour and salt and baking soda and baking powder together, and you put 100% of it in, and you get 98% of it back, well... If you're making one layer of cake, that probably won't make a big difference. But if you're making more, well, having less than the recipe calls for is going to maybe give us some trouble. My preference for sifting flours is the handled wire mesh strainer. Uh, they make such a thing as a uh, tea strainer, which looks almost like a solid piece of metal. And that's not going to work for our flour. That's not what we want to have. But that, that thin wire with really small holes for sifting, that's ideal. Sift a couple of times, and you're going to get the air you need, and you get the small chunks out, which we don't need. And that's going to give us some success. Now, I'm going to have a link on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 44, which will have some of the tools that we're talking about and that I use when I'm making cake. For butterless cakes, and the most popular one probably is the angel food cake, this would be a place where having at least three siftings of flour is going to make a big contribution to the nice, fine texture and good crumb of that cake. Before I continue, I do want to speak to you who bake once a year, if that. I read some of the same sites you do, and I see the same pictures on the same blogs that you do, and I know how intimidating those pictures can be trying to recreate that perfect, hours-long, composed shot of yummy, moist cake, cookies, brownies, whatever they are. As a professional cook, I know that's a challenge, so I know that the home cooks and bakers who are just occasional Bakers are just like, throw their hands up and say, man, there is, I, I can't do that. Well, let's, let's know a few things first. The $30 pan and the $500 mixer and all the expensive tools don't make the baked good better. Good tools do help, don't misunderstand me. But if you don't have the latest silicone pan, which, by the way, except for silicone baking sheets, I hate silicone bakeware. Or if you don't have the celebrity-endorsed gizmo, that will not make a difference. Technique and procedure make the difference. And practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. If you are a wood carver or a painter, those first attempts, they were clunky. There's a learning curve for craft and skill mixed with a medium. If you baked cupcakes last week, Baking wedding cake this week seems a bit much. So, we're going to manage our expectations. The picture on the blog has one job. To make you want to make it. Now, it did its work. 
forget the picture. No kidding. There is an excellent chance that blogger spent hours tweaking every quorum, every angle, every herb sprig and tea towel fold to make that photo just so. Most of my photos are tidy, but they're made, <laughs> they're photos of what I made right after I made it. And I do that on purpose so that it's a realistic picture of what I made that you can make. It's on my cutting board, on my counter. I, I, this pretty is attractive. I get it. I understand. But it also, I think, creates a false expectation. And that's not fair to you or anybody. Be induced by the pretty picture, but don't, don't expect to recreate what somebody spent a day on in your kitchen. That's, that's, I don't think that's fair. With our mental mise en place focused on our kitchen and our baking, there are still some areas which are going to require a best judgment. And this is where all of the cookbook writers, good or bad, and all of the information you read, watch, and hear is going to leave you just a little bit short. Practice is the only thing that's going to fill that gap between what you, com what you consume as content and what you produce. So a few things. Creaming the butter. Most recipes will say, cream the butter until the butter is pale yellow. What if your butter is already pale yellow or not yellow at all? Now what? How long is enough creaming? What if, it do what if you cream too little? What if you cream too much? What about the sugar? Well, Here's where you, the woodcarver and the painter, are in the same boat. You are going to obtain a skill and some knowledge. In most cases, and there is always some outlier, double the volume for the creaming is a good standard to start with. Use the eyeball test. Look at it. Scrape down the sides and the bottom of the bowl once during creaming Paying special attention to that little bump at the bottom where the mixture does the, the paddle doesn't get to. And then scrape down the bowl at the end of the sugar one more time, making sure you clean the paddle before you add the eggs so that everybody is together. We want to make this entire batter one homogenous thing. So people who aren't part of the pool, well, they're going to sort of they probably won't ruin the batter, really. But for our for our practice of getting efficient and consistent and also in just attending to the details these are habits we're going to develop when you add the flour don't overmix all right well what does that mean when you see the flour has been incorporated into the batter and it appears smooth the batter appears smooth and no flour is visible stop mixing Portion and then also we're going to scrape to the bottom because we want to make sure we get all that bits. Portion the batter into the pans. Well, here's one of those mise en place moments. The batter's done and there are my cake pans, but they're not ready. What does that mean? Put batter into a prepared cake pan. <laughs> it's, it's cake pan. What do you need to do? Well, here's what we need to do. The pan needs to be brushed with a pan release spread which I prefer over the sprays. And it's a butter flour mixture and you can just paint it inside the, uh, inside the pans. Now, if you want to do like grandma did, and so again, we still love grandma. Uh, my grandma used to butter the inside of the uh, cake pans, put a little flour in there and then tap it all the way around to make sure that all of the spots uh, on the cake pan were buttered and then floured and that helped the uh, cake come out. There are some bakers who will use parchment paper circles, the diameter of the cake pan, and, and those are nice. You can buy them, you can make them. It's just one more thing to buy or make, and for a three-layer cake that you're making for a birthday or because it's, it's Tuesday, I don't find them necessary. Batter's made. We have our prepared pan. Batter has to be divided equally amongst the pans. Well, how do we do that? If your recipe doesn't tell you how much each layer is supposed to be either in volume, which will probably be 
if it mentions it at all, it's going to say it needs to be two cups or three cups. We need to find out how much batter do we have. Well, here's so here's one of those other mental and reason plus moments. Regardless if the recipe offers any advice on what size portion you need to make, weigh your empty mixing bowl and make a note of how much does it weigh. When you have finished mixing your batter, weigh the batter-filled bowl again, subtract the empty bowl weight, and that is the weight of the batter you have in your bowl. Divide that by how many pans you have. So uh, we're going to make this easy on me. Let's pretend you have 900 grams of batter and you have three pans. And they're prepped, they're floured, they're ready to go. Put that pan on the scale, hit the tear, which will make the uh, scale read zero, and add 300 grams of batter to that, and do that for the other two. And now you have an even cake. Now, there's at least two main reasons why we want to make sure the pans are relatively filled the same. One is so when the cake is cut and we're presenting it, each layer is uniform. The uniform looks good. There's a consistency to that, and we like that. But the other reason is, as long as they are all mostly the same filled, they are mostly the same bake. If one pan is 500 grams and one pan is 200 grams, and the other pan is two, five, six, seven, 200 grams. Well, we're going to have one an inconsistency in size. We're going to have an inconsistency in bake time. And the fuller pan will, of course, take longer to bake. But we also might end up getting a, a darker outside, which on bread is fine. On bread, uh, on cake, uh, it can present some challenges that we don't want to deal with. So consistency is important. Uniformity is important. And by the way, <laughs> this is this was a hard learned experience. So this isn't something that I just I mean I did read it, but you know, I was young and I knew better than the author, so I just went and did it. And well, so experience is a good teacher. Pans are uniformly filled and we're ready to bake. I was reading through my Boston cooking school copyright nineteen twenty-two cookbook on the chapter on cakes and read an interesting little tidbit. She was writing about cakes being baked in an oven, which are wood-fired ovens. They didn't have thermometers. So stoke your oven with the right amount of wood to bring the temperature up to the right temperature to bake your cake. Okay, well, fortunately... We don't have those problems anymore. We have thermometers in our ovens. And, you know, it isn't a bad idea to have an additional oven thermometer if you do a lot of baking and if you think that your oven is not accurate. And how would you know that? Let's say you're you're baking cakes and the recipe reads this cake layer will take 18 minutes to bake and you're baking your cake layer at 40 minutes and it's still not done. Well there's a good chance there's a problem with your oven calibration. So having a, uh, an additional thermometer in the oven to help you figure out what's what is a good way to know whether your oven is off or whether your oven is right. Let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, flour and sugar you can easily get at your grocery store. But for harder to find ingredients or better quality ingredients, Check out my affiliate, Olive Nation. Olive Nation carries a wide variety of chocolate, cocoa, gluten-free flours, flavorings, including superior vanilla, snacks, and more. Just use my link, culinarylibertarian.com olive, to see all the selections. See the website for details about free shipping. Click culinarylibertarian.com slash olive for your ingredient needs. Olive Nation, the ingredient store with the funny name. culinarylibertarian.com slash olive. Now, let's get back to the podcast. The convention for cakes is that they're baked at 350 degrees. 
Now, the application of heat is going to cause a chemical reaction between the baking powder and the liquids in the cake. They're going to get bubbles of carbon dioxide, and then more things are going to happen. The sugars are going to caramelize on the outside, the starches are going to gelatinize, and those two things together, as they rise and solidify, as the protein gelatinizes, and there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of protein, it's a lot of it to some, that structure is going to be the thing that holds the cake up. As the cake rises, they'll start to brown. They might sink a little bit in the middle, but they'll remain leavened. The real telltale visual sign that your cake is done is the cake layer will start to pull away a little bit from the pan. And it might be a couple of millimeters. But when it starts to do that, if you don't really trust your fingertips and you want to double check with the cake tester, that's fine. So you put the cake tester in or the toothpick in and it comes out clean, the cake is done. But that pulling away from the sides is a pretty, pretty universal clue that this cake is nearly there or is done. So take the cake out of the oven, put that on a cooling rack, and just like in bread, because it just came out of the oven doesn't mean it is now not hot. Of course it's hot. And all of that heat that's there is going to continue doing its heat baking thing, even though it's not in the oven. So part of the baking process for bread, cakes, and cookies is the cooling down part. That's as critical as everything else. And if you try and take the cake out of the pan too soon, well, unhappiness might be next. I generally wait five minutes for my cake to cool, and sometimes it'll be 10. What I want to have happen is I want that cake pan to be cool enough to handle. So if I can't hold it with my fingers and depend on some other thing in between, I might risk dropping the pan. Well, that's unhappiness all over the place, <laughs> quite literally. Um, the other thing is I want to make sure that all of the chemical stuff happening in the, in, in the cake layer, there's the caramelized sugar that's all kind of fluid and the starch fluid gelatinization stuff. I want that to start to come back to a solid form so that when I tip the cake out, it's going to hold its shape and not degas or fall or some other undesirable result. Leaving a cake in, in the pan for five or ten minutes isn't the end of the world. You may have some real issues if you go back in a couple hours. That might be a problem. So we might still do it while it's a little bit on the warm side to make you know give us the fighting chance to get the cake out because that's what the cake wants from us. We want it wants to be a whole layer of cake. Uh, if you have access to those cardboard cake circles from your grocery store or a cake decorating store, they are quite useful. It might be a good idea to place a piece of baking paper between the cake and the cardboard before you invert it. And that would be mostly to help manage uh, any of the sticking issues that might come from the top of the cake um, onto the cardboard. The cardboard is going to want to absorb the water from the cake. And what that really means is when you take that off, part of that top layer of cake is going to come with it and be on the cardboard. Not altogether a bad thing, but it just makes one is disappointing. It's aesthetically unpleasant, but it's just a mess. So it's something we can avoid. Uh, and when you go and ice the cake, that's going to disappear and no one's going to see it. Allow the cakes to cool completely. So when you touch them with your bare hand, you should not feel any residual heat coming off of there at all. And that can take a couple of hours to make sure that that cake is fully ready to ice. Uh, especially if you're using a buttercream. Buttercream icings, well, they don't like to be hot. And, hey, <laughs> oh, God, this is a, a, a horrible, horrible experience. And I really felt bad for the, this was for wedding cake. It was my first delivery at this particular bakery. And it, this, the design was it had a whole bunch of icing roses down, down the side. And it was a three- or a four-tiered cake. And we got to the venue, and it was hot inside. <laughs> it was like, a, and the icing said, "You know, this is hotter than I want it to be, and gravity is pulling down on me. So I think I'm just gonna go." Pfft. 
slide down the cake. And it did. Oh, God. It was a mess. It was just... And it was terrible. So, avoid, avoid that problem. Let the cake cool. This wasn't a cool cake problem. This was the place was too hot problem. But in either way, icing sliding off your cake is unhappy. We don't want unhappy. Uh, for today's show notes page, I will add a recipe for uh, a pretty easy icing. It's a it's a buttercream icing that, uh, of all of the kinds of buttercream icings, I find this one the easiest one to manage at home with the least amount of cursing because cursing isn't good. It's fun, but we don't need it for our cake. Let's take a minute to talk about ingredients. I have a cake book from 1991, which is called Great Cakes by Carol Walter, and she's a really good cookbook author. And What I mean by that is she explains what to do, what to see, and how to do the thing. And that's Sadly, a bit of a rarity among cookbook authors. One of the interesting points in this 1991 book is she suggests substituting margarine for butter in cakes where lower cholesterol is desired. Well, first of all, we're talking about cake, so these things probably oughtn't really be a concern. But secondly, never use margarine, ever, anywhere, for any reason. There's no reason to buy or use margarine. And on a personal note, I would avoid shortenings and these so-called vegetable oils with one exception. And I would use peanut oil if when, when mixing things like a carrot cake, which is technically a muffin. Uh, it calls for a, uh, at least mine does, calls for a liquid at room temperature oil. Um, you could conceivably use a regular olive oil and for all the sugar and brown sugar and raisins and carrots in there, it's entirely possible you wouldn't really notice that it's olive oil, but it's, if you don't have an allergy to peanuts, I would recommend peanut oil for that. For a, a detailed discussion about uh, liquid at room temperature fats, check out culinarylibertarian.com slash 14. That's my talk with Kyle Mamonis, the biochemist, about fats and sugars in the diet. Flour for cakes can be all-purpose, but cake flour does produce better result, and it was milled for that purpose. Uh, so all-purpose flour is going to have a little bit more protein than a cake flour, which means if it's if it has less protein, it's got more starch. If you get into a pastry flour, it's even more in the less protein and more starch area, and that what what how that translates into the into the baked good is. The higher starch content is going to allow us, so let's, let's go backwards. The lower protein is going to end up making a more delicate pastry. Now, of course, adding extra amounts of butter in, say, your croissant or your Danish or your puff pastry, that certainly also contributes to a tender, flaky, delicious pastry. But the different flours are milled for these particular reasons. So a good brand name cake flour, not Frank's off the back of the truck, uh, something that you can depend on for consistency, that's the way to go. Uh, baking soda and baking powder should be within their use-by dates. They will probably leaven the cake, but since they are just really chemicals, they will degrade over time and not have the potency you want them to have and a poorly leavened cake seems hardly worth the gamble when this is such an easy problem to fix. Vanilla extract. Quality varies vastly from producers and companies. This is one ingredient you truly do get what you pay for. And you will find, in at least in my grocery store and probably yours too, more than a few options for purchase. There'll be that very popular brand name that starts with an M, uh, and that's it's probably fine. Then you'll see some of these little more exotic four-ounce or two-ounce bottles for up to $20 or more. 
know, it's not unreasonable to say, what the heck is going on here? Why would I pay five times the amount for what appears to be the same thing? And the answer to the question is, when you buy the expensive vanilla, you're getting a far superior product that has much more potency. So you actually don't need the full teaspoon per batch that the recipe calls for because it's so strong. And that really amazing vanilla flavor is going to really make a difference. Uh, chocolate chip cookies, yeah, you can, you can see it's there. I mean, I can tell. I know it's the difference. But in the cake, wow. It's just, it's, it's worth the money for the good stuff. You're going to use less of it anyway, but for that flavor, for that, it's like, ah, that's the thing. So it's, it's, it's worth doing. Salt. Salt increases the flavor of the ingredients. So a little bit of salt in your really fabulous vanilla extract cake is going to be even better. Uh, I have done a whole blog post on salt, and I'm really opposed to the free-flowing, commercial, white salt. Stuff that almost never gets caked and in clumps. Salt that comes out of the ground isn't like that. And it has, that commercial salt has been processed with, with high, high heat and other things that have destroyed nearly all the micronutrients. So all that you have left is sodium and chloride. And yes, sodium is vital to human life. But the 98 other micronutrients that have been stripped out of that, well, we want those too. Of course, this is cake. We have some other issues. But we want at least a better salt. I avoid iodized salt because we can get iodine in lots of other places, including a good sea salt. But I don't like the flavor of commercial iodized salt. It tastes metallic to me. I don't find it enjoyable. So uh, if you can, that pink salt... Uh, milled nice and fine is perfect, uh, or a uh, sometimes sea salt has a um, like a dampness to it. Well, that's fine too. Uh, at least that's going to have more of the micronutrients in it, and that's what we're looking for. Uh, for milk, I prefer whole milk because fat is flavor. Uh, buttermilk, for some reason, at least in my stores, I can't find a uh, a a anything other than a low-fat buttermilk. Now, that's I haven't really dug into this. Uh, that's probably just a feature of making buttermilk, as opposed to a bug. Maybe that there is no such thing as 2 or 4% buttermilk. Uh, so, we get what we get. The best teacher, of course, is experience. A book is a great place to get information. I've been a bit vocal in this podcast and other ones about not all books are really created equal, which probably means not all authors are created equal. Some cookbooks simply don't convey what they ought and disappoint the reader. For home baking, which is what I'm talking about, Nick Malgieri is excellent. And so is Rose Levy Birnbaum. Uh, her cake Bible is almost indispensable. Uh, the book How Baking Works is going to get deeper into the, the chemistry of what's happening in the pan, in the oven, with the stuff. And that's interesting to know. I'll have links to those books at the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 44. Mixing and baking is the process of mixing the ingredients in the proper order to the right consistency, and panning it and baking it. Being overwhelmed by the blog pages or the pages and pages and pages of introductory content in a baking book, that can be overwhelming, and that's understandable. Break the baking down into steps. Visualize yourself doing this, accomplishing these steps one at a time, and as you go through this, you make the whole thing bit by bit. Uh, if you are old enough to remember the uh, Christmas special, put one foot in front of the other. And, and this is what we're doing. So, you know, it's, we, we're, some people, they see a, 
They, they look at a giant rock and they see this statue. I look at a giant rock and I see a giant rock. I don't know what the carver can see in there and I don't know how he makes that come out. I don't know. The same thing with the wood guy. Man, I really, really respect people who can take a pile of lumber and make a thing. I, I, that's cool. That's a craft that I respect and admire and don't possess. Same thing goes with baking. I had to learn this, and you can learn it too. The process of baking has a degree of science to it. But knowing the chemical makeup of flour doesn't make you a better baker just for knowing that. It helps you decide what flour to use, but it doesn't make you a better baker because you've chosen cake flour over bread flour. Practice is the way forward. And here's the thing. I, as much as anyone, know the feeling of personal disappointment when you know, oh man, if I had done this one thing for another 30 seconds, it would have been perfect. I get it. Boy, do I get it. <laughs> I've made stuff that people loved that I was like, I don't care. Throw it in the garbage. I'm done with it. I am so I'm just over it. I don't want to see it again. That's probably a bit extreme, but... It's to illustrate that I know what the feeling is to be disappointed that a thing didn't work out well. This baked good, superior or inferior, depends really on the on the audience, is going to be presented probably to people who love you and people who appreciate a treat and the thing that you did. And to them, unless it's like, you know, you forgot to... <laughs> changed the the sugars became salt. Well, well, that's a real problem. But if you know if you've done well, you've done the best that you can, and you made this and presented with love, appreciation, they're gonna love it. Remember to change your expectations. If you can do what you see in the picture, that's great. Don't not do it. But if you're if you bake once a year and you want to bake three times a year, start with what's manageable. You're baking for your family and your friends. You're not making the cake for your boss's wedding. I'll put some links on the show notes page, including what is, to me, the all-time best ever in the whole wide world, chocolate cake, which, interestingly, has a different mixing process than the standard cake. I'll also add a white cake, which is easy and excellent, and also not traditional, and gets raves all the time. But in fact, it has been, <laughs> I, made, I made a cake for the grand opening at my wife's work, and there was an occasion for another one. They all said, oh, we want that cake again. It's easy, it's fantastic, you can do it. And one more, other, oh, by the way, the chocolate cake, my 12-year-old made it. For my birthday last year, because she knows I like it, it's, I'm telling you, this is this is the best chocolate cake you've ever had. It can go in any form, a bun pan, a sheet pan, a round, doesn't matter. Make cupcakes. It's amazing. Make some chocolate icing. And, or, oh, you know what's even better? <laughs> oh, God. That, that chocolate cake, like a little cupcake or, oh, and some cream cheese icing. Oh, well, okay, you know, it's, it's a whole lot of sweet, but oh my goodness, is it so good. All right, so I'm going to have some recipes on the, on the show notes page. Um, I wanted to give a, a basics. The keys are double check your recipe. Make sure you have all of the things that you need. Sift, sift, sift. I put this... Uh, question onto one of my baking Facebook pages saying, what are your most important steps? What's your most important advice for cake makers and sifting? Sifting came back a couple of times. Make sure the oven is on. Make sure you turn the oven on well ahead of time so that it's hot and ready to go. So this is, again, mental museum plus. If you've got your cake batters in your prepared pans, the oven's not on. Well, 
don't don't stop, but we may have some hiccups. So be prepared. Double check everything. Visualize, follow through the procedure, and you will do well. And send me some pictures. Put them up on Facebook. Let's see your excellence. You can do this. Any day which ends in a Y is an excellent day for homemade cake. All right, folks, that's going to do it. All the links and resources I mentioned will be linked at the show notes page for today, culinarylibertarian.com slash 44. If you are feeling confident and want to learn how to improve your cake and decorating skills, click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash Kiko's Cakes. That's K-E-I-K-O-S-C-A-K-E-S for a subscription to Kiko's Cakes. Right now, for a limited time, there is a summer special on membership, $8 instead of $19. You get access to downloadable PDF guides with step-by-step instructions, videos of Kiko demonstrating that cake, making and assembly, access to a community forum, and new cake recipes and procedures. With over 150 cakes and desserts, there is more than enough for you to start your next level of baking. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash Kiko's Cakes or click the banner on the show notes page CulinaryLibertarian.com slash 44. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.
Let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, flour and sugar you can easily get at your grocery store. But for harder to find ingredients or better quality ingredients, check out my affiliate, Olive Nation. Olive Nation carries a wide variety of chocolate, cocoa, gluten-free flours, flavorings including superior vanilla, snacks, and more. Just use my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash olive to see all the selections. See the website for details about free shipping. Click culinarylibertarian.com slash olive for your ingredient needs. Olive Nation, the ingredient store with the funny name. culinarylibertarian.com slash olive. Now, let's get back to the podcast.